What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Surf and Sales podcast. I am one of your hosts, Scott Lease, co-founder of the Surf and Sales Summit. Check it out at surfandsales.com. We've got tickets available for both sessions, November 27th through December 1st and December 2nd through December 6th. How's it going, Richard? It is going well, man. I'm uh it's interesting. I just was commenting that uh you shaved your beard and goatee, you look like a like a baby-faced assassin like our friend Steph Curry. So um I yeah. should be so lucky at the age of 45 to look and show at you. <laughs> well, you know, I'm only 10 days away from turning 46, if you can believe that, dude. That's all right. I, I'm I gonna catch you. I'm gonna I catch I, you. I even ordered your birthday present today. So uh look out in the mail. Well, I hope you're shipping it to uh, London, England, because that's where I'll be on my on my birthday. That's Richard Harris, everybody, the other co-founder of Surf and Sales. Together, we formed the Surf and Sales podcast. We are joined today by my friend, Tom Bustler, who is the founder of Champify. Richard, tell everybody about our wonderful uh, partner and sponsor in HubSpot. Yeah, absolutely. So... Um... HubSpot has been really supportive to us, and so we gladly want to support them. We are part of the HubSpot podcast network, and we're actually part of the HubSpot YouTube network, which, Scott, by the way, we're starting to get the YouTube videos back up on the roll online, so those will be good for folks, too, if you like to watch the episodes. Just when I thought that my baby face would not be exposed to everybody, Richard has put us on YouTube. Okay. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. We've been there. We've just been a little lax, but now, now we're getting back into it. Uh, a couple of things we want to share about HubSpot and their AI-powered tools. Um, the revolution is here. You better embrace it. Um, we know a lot of people are freaked out and scared by it, but the more you embrace it, the more it will become, um, which then helps with your own job uh, and career security. So the AI revolution is upon us. Um, and if you're concerned about how to use chat GPT, um, you know, it's important to know that uh, even ChatGPT apparently is is trouncing Taylor Swift uh, about things. At least that's the notes that HubSpot has shared with us. Uh, but check out their power tools. Uh, they have a content assistant and they have ChatSpot. Um, they have conversational virtual assistants backed with a smooth CRM experience. So it's not sort of bouncing around from one platform to the next. Uh, they do run on OpenAI's ChatGPT model and they're designed to get you get more done, grow your business better, bigger, faster. Um, and specifically the content assistance really nice is that it helps with the compelling content that matters um, because there's so much noise out in the marketplace. So anything we can do to help us get started and relevant content is uh, super helpful. Um, it'll help you brainstorm, create and share content in a flash all inside and you can capture it inside your CRM. So. Anyway, let's come back to the show. Thank you to HubSpot and your AI-powered tools content assistant. Todd so. Bustler, founder of Champify. Welcome to the Surf and Sales podcast, man. Appreciate you having me, Scott. Looking good and uh, look kind of naked without the beard. Well, um, give it a couple of days and it'll just be back already. So, yeah. <laughs> I caught the uh, CTO of HubSpot on that My First Million. That guy's awesome. Um, uh, just like what how he thinks about chat gpt how quickly they spun it up what he's focused on what kind of domain side projects he's working on that guy seems to have it figured out interesting to think about 
the CTO of a huge company like uh, HubSpot, who still side projects, side hustles, whatever you want to call it, because so many people are like, oh, you should only focus on one thing. And here's this guy. He's exploring different things. Yeah, it's definitely not an accident either. He talks about it. I'm like, look, yeah, I want to stay the CTO of this big company. He's one of the founders, but it's like very intentionally doesn't manage people, always working on the next big thing. Where is he spending his time? And I just think where really sharp people like that are spending their time is a big enough signal in itself. Yeah, it's worth a listen. Well, tell everybody about what you're working on so they have some context for, uh, you know, your background, your expertise, that stuff. Yeah, so my background, um, I've been in tech sales and tech startups for the last like 12 years. Um, really learned and cut my teeth at a company called Heath in the product analytics space. I was the first rep there. I joined at five employees and left around 300 employees. Um, I joined like pre-Salesforce, pre-any contracts, you know, super early. Um, I spent a year in venture as an operator in residence after Heath, mainly because I really liked the early stage and that gave me a chance to work with early stage founders in the unusual ventures portfolio, helping, you know, Scott and Richard, two engineers that are going to market and have no idea how to sell and market. Um, so I got to work with like four to six companies pretty deeply there on getting their first couple customers, hiring their first couple reps, um, figuring out what channels are going to work. And then during my time at Heap, really the last three, four years at Heap, coupled with helping these early stage founders, I just kept seeing that you know, the way these companies have traditionally gone about outbound sales was really changing, right? It used to be, here's a Zoom info account, here's outreach, kind of go. And you could get people that were really hungry and comfortable with those tools that have good success. And that world has really changed, right? We've seen email volume double in the last two years. We've seen response rates drop like 40 to 50% across the board. And I'll tell you, I don't think that's changing. A lot of this AI stuff, I think, is accelerating that. So what Champify is out to do is help companies that have done a really good job building happy customers and thousands of happy users to tap into those people. Um, you know, about one to two percent of those people are changing jobs every single month. And that presents a huge pipeline opportunity today, especially when some of your outbound traditional channels are less efficient and less effective than they've been. So Champify takes the whole process of tapping into that entire audience, whether that's in your CRM, your product user database, whatever that is, monitoring understanding where they're going, alerting the right rep at the right time so you can be super relevant in your messaging. And our customers are seeing you know, significantly higher response rates, better win rates, better velocity on a, a bigger chunk of their overall pipeline than they, than they would have thought. Would you call this customer-led growth? I would. I definitely would because a lot of these people are going from one customer to a named account or prospect, but you're really, you're following customers, right? And the companies that have built the best relationships and delivered the best experiences to those customers are basically stop, they're, they're not looking at these individuals as, hey, Scott has been at HubSpot for 10 years. They're looking at Scott as the individual and really building a relationship with that individual throughout their entire employment, right? And the companies are winning that have, are being rewarded for having those good experiences and good products over, you know, the length of the company's history. I, of course, love hearing you say that traditional methodologies are not working as well as they used to. I've been espousing this uh, for, I don't know, six to 12 months now, trying to get louder and louder uh, around it. Um, when you see 
customer-led growth models and, and your own customer base growing and people who are running into this kind of challenge. How prevalent is, is the, the, the idea or the thesis that, my God, we've, we've got to evolve because like cold calling is not working as much, emailing is not working as much. Is this still like a, a radical idea? Are you going to get a lot of pushback on it? Is there chinks in the armor now and people kind of are aware of it and, and they're accepting it or are they like full-blown accepting it? I think there's three schools of thought. There's you that's like on the forward edge and advising a bunch of companies and seeing it firsthand of like, hey, the playbook for 2016 just does not work like it does in 2023. And they get it, right? And they're looking at really creative ways of using intent or customer-led growth or, or things like networks, et cetera. I think there's the old school sales leader that's just like, no, more activity. That's what works in my doing that. And there's a lot more people that fit into that camp than you'd expect. And and quite frankly, I, I feel like a lot of them, are, those sales leaders are giving their teams losing plays, right? Like I talk to sales reps every day and I'm like, look, I have two options, do what I think's best or hit the metrics they want that aren't working. What do I do? That's a shitty situation to be in. I think most people are in the middle, Scott, where they're like, mm -hmm. wait, I'm seeing this is happening. I don't really know what to do about it though. Yeah. Right. Like I, I made a whole, my whole career on following a somewhat similar playbook. And now there's a lot of stuff in the market of, you know, what do I actually do to increase pipeline? What do I do to create winning plays? And I think people are trying to wrap their head around. What's the biggest bang for the buck? How quickly do I make a radical change? Well, that that's my question, naturally, is to sort of say, okay, well, where do you start, right? And and I think I think a lot of leaders would be stuck in that, okay, I want to start. I'm not sure where to start, how to start, and what's it going to do? How do I explain it to my executive leadership team or my board that we're shaped, taking this shift in approach and is, you know, because the concerns can be, oh, our pipeline's going to not get built as much because we're making this shift. So where where does one even start with those kind of thoughts in their head? I think they do. They need to be radical changes, right? Like my take on this, I think a lot of SDRs, a lot of AEs, especially in the SMB space that have been prospect heavy, which I think is a good thing have become outreach and sales loft monkeys where they spend most of their time just like going through menial tasks. And I think what you're starting to see is the best orgs are saying, okay, if if a lot of what they're doing can be automated, let's put the smartest rev ops, go to market engineer growth person and try to handle that, right? Because you don't want to see activity drop. Like you can't dramatically cut 90% of your activity and think you're going to see the same result. I think it's just who's spending and where. But you do have to make some radical shifts around, hey, these are the activity metrics that have worked the last four or five years. And now I don't actually care about the number of emails you've sent. I don't actually mm -hmm. care about how many calls you made. And you you got to go and try to goal on things that matter, whether that's quality conversations, whether that's referrals, whether that's intros to a warm account. Yeah. So and I'm the tactical guy. Like, I agree with you strategically. Where do I start? Right. I'm a VP of sales or even I'm a CRO. Right. To, and to your point. I'm stuck in my old school ways, but I do have a growth mindset. Do I shift people? Do I cut my team? Do I start to shift people to your point of, um, you know, creating more of a analyst ops person on that, on outbound or how you're approaching it? Like, where do we start? 
I think where you start is let's go look at what's not working. So you're sending 10,000 emails and getting a 0.08 half that's positive response rate. Like, okay, we don't need to be doing that. So exactly what that's replaced by, you know, we're seeing a lot of folks like, hey, take your RevOps team, a revenue engineer, and try to do what 10 of those SDRs are doing with one individual, good email warming, really good use of AI or scraping to get the right information that you need. And then you need to goal the reps on other things. Like, is this going to be referrals? Is this going to be everyone's doing small micro events to get people in person? Is this going to be, hey, we're going to spend way more time than we have in the past tapping into our investor networks, tapping into our advisor networks? Like, there are the things that don't get enough attention, in my opinion. And I think the goals have to change to change those behaviors. I think that's really smart, too, because I think we've all said this. We've all talked about leveraging our networks. And then we... To your point, because I'm not gold on leveraging the network, right? The problem. So then do those goals become, hey, we still want to set the same. I'm thinking very simply at the SDR yeah. level. You can still set the same number of meetings, but I don't care how you do it. And I'm going to teach you how to do these other things, right? It's not just email, not just cold calling um, and keeping those components because that's probably still a part of the equation teaching them how to go to the board, teaching them how to do those things. Is that is that what I'm hearing? Yeah, to be as tactical as possible, you know, we have one SDR, uh, you know, a handful of folks on the sales team. Like, right. don't get me wrong. We have a target list of accounts that we're going after. We know sure. all the contacts in there that we're trying to get into, but it looks very different. Like a lot of our SDR's time is spent like, okay, how are we cross-referencing the connections that we have into these companies? Who's going to be the person that has the highest likelihood to get that response? And getting meetings that way might look like 15 emails to get three meetings versus 2,000 emails. Very this is one of the, yeah, this is one of the resistances I always saw when trying to do this was, you know, Scott's my CEO. I see that Scott's connected to Todd. And as an SDR, I was... There, there was a lack of internal buy-in and communication on who could ask Scott to send that message and what message to send. Or do we empower the SDRs to copy Scott on email and just say, hey, I'm reaching out because I know you're connected with Scott. He's CC'd here. Here's what we're trying to do. We'd love to get a meeting with you. Like, Have you seen an approach? What do you see? What do you see is working, not working, et cetera? I think there's a concept of a supporter, like a Scott for us, right? Or our main investor, et cetera. I think there's someone that owns that relationship and everything should be filtered through them, right? So well, we're how, doing do we get, this how do I get Scott to make time to do that for me? I, I think that's like inherent or not. You either have CEOs or sales that are like, look, I believe in this is the way. And I know this is worth a couple hours a week to do that. Now, the SDR should make it as easy as possible, but people shouldn't be bombarding Scott 50 different intros from SDRs. It should come from the person that has the relationship and then ops and the SDRs should make that as easy as possible for it to actually happen. That's that's the part I want people to listen to is that I think we've all been too afraid to do it. There is this question of over-indexing on someone like Scott. Scott, for those who weren't weren't watching on the YouTube channel, uh, he gave us the, the Johnny Manziel money sign. But Scott, you're the CEO, so the money should be there. So we have to remind you of that, not just pay you on a special referral basis internally. But um, I think you're right. There has to be a strong process um, to align that, to help get that buy-in from, from those C-level executives. Because otherwise, 
you know, the sea levels know everybody, right? But I, I also love the one part you said, which I want people to go back and play is that Scott has to commit to two to three hours a week of doing this. The CEO, the CRO, the executive, whoever it is, you've got to get that commitment. And if they aren't willing to commit, but they're going to keep yelling at SDRs and ADs to make more calls and emails, then you got a big gap. I think you got a big problem. If I heard you correctly. I think you heard me correct. I think the key is, you know, if you have an empathetic leader that sees the current plays that sales leaders are giving that aren't working, then they have to buy into that. I think the problem you, with what you said, Richard, is I think you can get a lot of people commit, committed to it, but like, I think it's more commitment they need. It's easy to be like, cool, we have a sp shared spreadsheet. Here's some connections we have, but it's like a lot of these people don't answer in the first time. Who's owning that follow-up? How do you put this in the tone? How do you use the executive, uh, the EAs, right? Like there's a lot more that goes into it. It's like really yeah. commit, right? It's really committing to it, but I think these are smart. So show the metrics on the alternatives. Right. And in, in two to three hours, it's going to look cheap versus, you know, 10 people investing 40 hours a week. So Scott, if, are you going to be the athletic leader? You say that as, as if that would mean I'd have to change or adjust who I am and, yeah. and, and how I've been. No, false, false. So <laughs> that means we need a new standard list of so, but we need I, a new list of APIs, basically. Right. A hundred percent. I mean, we do this internally. Our SDR, we, you know, we have a Slack channel. What are we doing this week? What are we doing this day? How do we perform, et cetera? We're yeah. still doing some of the standard outreach because like, I think in, we're new enough that there's a lot of kind of, hey, what is that thing? People will take meetings with us. But every single day, we have a list of contacts through our network that we're going after. Hey, what's the status of this? What are we getting? And we're measuring the conversion rate just like anything else. The numbers and quantity are a lot lower. But they're still leading indicators, so what, like any so, other channel. So, what are those those KPIs? So, I, I think you you can't abandon everything that has historically worked because it still works a little bit. It just doesn't work as good. So, no one I think is advocating you know stop cold calling, stop researching and sending you know good emails and all that kind of stuff. So, um, no one is saying. Like stop picking up the phone and calling people, stop sending good, well-written emails. You still have to do that, but they just don't work as well as it used to. So what are these new KPIs? You're saying, yes, we need new KPIs, but what, but what exactly are they? I have ideas yeah, of what I think a few of them would be, but I'm, I want to know what you think those yeah, are. Yeah, here, here's what I think, and, and I'm curious to hear you as well. So, and I want to make it clear, like I'm actually hot on cold calling right now. Like I actually think there's a little bit of, arbitrage there where people have gotten scared of the phones and people depending on who your persona are like you can still get a lot there we do a lot of that here um and i agree with you scott it's not going away it hopefully becomes less of your overall mix i think about it like this you have pipeline mix right we do a lot of podcasts we do a lot of events to get people coming inbound hopefully that continues to grow it takes time seo and all that takes time the pure outbound direct motion you're not going to the, the emails what we try to do is split it into two. So how much can we automate with our CTO and head of product? Like we're actually doing a lot of using ChatGPT to go and understand who are their customers, what's their G2 reviews, et cetera. So you can automate the, the menial stuff that SDRs are doing. And then we have KPIs around like personal first high quality email written 
two prospects. We still look at that because that is a different type of conversion rate. I think the things that we're adding is like we use our own product and we always know, okay, how many former customers are coming into another account? Are we adopting them at 100% or very close to it? How big of a pipeline source does that become? How big of a pipeline source does the networks, the connections become? And every month we're looking at, here's the potential intros we're trying to make this month. How many did we ask? How many are we actually getting? So I think it just spreads the mix across of what we're getting. But that, that's how I think about the KP, new KPIs. Some of the new KPIs. Anything you'd add? Oh, Any, anything you'd add, Scott? Well, some of the ones that I've been thinking about is, you know, in, in order to utilize any type of network, customer network, community network, friend network, advisor network, whatever, you have to first build a network. So if, if, if we're saying to salespeople, like, gone are the days of making 200 calls a day, it would make sense for you to make like 15 to 20 really smart ones. What we need you to now do is grow the size of your network. So I could see a world where it's like, did you send 25 new connection requests today to the right type of prospect or individual in your industry, whatever? How many um, network events did you attend, either in person or virtual? How many podcasts did you book or record? And then, you know, what did those get in terms of outcomes, of course, right? I've been thinking about, you know, things like that, follower count growth, right? That stuff matters right now. People used to say, and maybe still do say, like, those are vanity metrics, that they don't mean anything. It's like, bullshit. Somebody who has 300 people in their network does not have the same opportunity to sell through their network as somebody who has 300,000 people in their network. So th those are a few of the KPIs that I've been thinking about that, um, you know, maybe are starting to become more important than they used to be. We did old CRM, he said at the time I looked at him like he had three heads where he's like, hey, I want you having at least five meetings with other, with partners, just your peers that are selling to the same accounts, whatever. And I looked at him like he was crazy. I think he was ahead of the curve. I'd add that to that as well. He was. Scott. Like if you, if you just know who are the people selling to those same accounts, you're more likely to be in a conversation when something's right. So I agree with that. And I think the LinkedIn connection is big too. I think companies need to be intentional about Okay, is this everyone in our organization? Are we trying to create a couple people that have way bigger followings, way bigger influence and funnel things through them? But like, if you're not maxing out the LinkedIn connections to your target prospects, you're crazy. Like you're crazy. Yeah, I think it has to be a part of the process. Richard, go ahead. Yeah, I wanna, I wanna actually shift topics as I was running through tech support. So I kind of got lost on this one, but I, I had a question from early, early on in the beginning. So y'all can come back to this if you want. Yeah, you mentioned sort of being an entrepreneur residence. Um, can't remember what you operator in residence is that what it was called, right? That, yeah. And you enjoy working with those early stage companies, house first few customers. What are people getting wrong about that? And what are they getting right about finding those first few customers? Because I think that's a big thing that is, is tough. Like, you know, the old, the, the current methodology is friends and family, you know, leveraging your VC network, 
Is there something else or is that really still where people begin? I think the, the friends and family, the investor network, if you're in any communities or in accelerators, 100%, that's going to happen. I, I do think there has to be a component of you have to go and test, will people respond to this that you don't know, right? You get better feedback from people you don't know and just seeing if people respond. And again, you have to test the, the mediums and the channels, but you have to do that validation. I think why I like early stage stuff is it's you have to be super creative, like your pitch deck or how you position things changes usually every meeting or every handful of meetings. Um, also, you're, you're nine out of early stage companies, you're creating some budget. So like, yeah, you have to get really good at, we don't have budget for this. We're not looking at this. No one does. And like, you have to learn how to get people to want to care about it. I think the biggest mistake, Richard, to answer your question is people go too wide. Like so many times at my unusual experience, there are a lot of founders now that have eng background will ask me, hey, how do you go about this? And nine out of 10 times I say, okay, let's walk through your ICP. And I figure out how do you cut this 90%? Like narrower is better. And most people think like, oh, let me go wider and that's going to get better outcomes. But you should constantly be looking at the ICP as how can I cut this or what new hypothesis can I make so that I can cut this, right? And it's a series of testing. Are we reaching out to people? Can we get responses? Does this resonate? But I think the big mistake is people go wide on their ICP instead of trying to tighten it. Yeah, I agree with that a lot. Yeah, I agree with that as well. So do you, when you were doing this, you know, what's what stage, you know, what level of funding did these young companies have? Because there's another question behind that. But were they at a, a million in funding from y'all? First check. For, yeah, first check. So it could be two guys or two guys and a, and a deck and an idea. I right. couldn't really help them much at that stage, except set up some customer development conversations. But nine out of 10 times, it's your first check, free revenue or very little revenue. Yeah, but, but how much is that first check? Because there's a question behind this question. Well, I was there at a little bit different time in the venture world. So there's a lot of times there's some really big first checks written. It wasn't crazy to see three, five, eight, ten million dollars is the right first check. That's the, re that's the reason. So let's say you get that that three million, right? Where do I take that three million to go get new customers? Right? How much of it is product? How much of it is you know, uh, you know, super early. I don't know that you need a salesperson, so to speak, right? But I'm trying to get to that founder's moment. Yeah. How do I do that? Because so often I see people get the three million and they don't spend anything. I'm not saying go willy nilly and lose it in six months, but you know, you can be smart with three million for a year and a half, right? Like that's my belief, anyway. Two two points. So. First off, I think like the early stage funding rounds being smaller and getting back to like milestone oriented is right. So you're not raising 8 billion trying to see if there's something there for four years. Like you should see in 18, 24, 30 months, like, okay, do we have enough here to keep going? I think in terms of how you spend the money, the thesis of unusual and why they hired people like me is because they couldn't, it didn't make sense to hire a full-time rep yet, or they couldn't get the caliber of the person they wanted because there wasn't enough proof yet. So could they drop in someone like me or a couple peers we had there to try to help them accelerate this? In terms of how they spend the money, it's, it depends, right? If you have an enterprise-y product, like, yeah, maybe you need to do some of that. If you have something that's more PLG developer-oriented, like you have to put money into the free product. You have to put money into the product time launches. You have to fund a really good product, uh, a free product with deep, you know, a lot of engineers working on that thing. I think what I've seen, what I've seen is that a lot of the technical founders tend to go 
too deep on the product and they're like, okay, if we have this one more feature, it's ready to sell. I think you have to try to sell right away. Like ask for money the minute people are using it because you don't really get good feedback otherwise. Yeah, I'm advising a company right now with that. And we're just, you know, we're, we're trying to go out and get those first couple of customers. And I don't know if Scott would agree or you would agree with this. I, I've said that we should probably get two to three customers of data, give it to them for free just for product feedback. If we can get money from them, great. But that's not, you know, we're still early enough that we need real, we need user feedback um, and just trade off the logo usage and customer stories for for the ability to test the product. So let's pick that. Let's pick that up. Right, Richard finishes this wonderful mid-roll. All right, go ahead, Richard. Scott is both director and producer today. Yes, <laughs> and star. I guess, frankly. I guess I'm the producer since my computer's running out of memory. Um, so thank you again to HubSpot from the HubSpot Podcast Network. We got tons of other great podcasts on there. Uh, one of our new favorites is hosted by Donald Miller, uh, and it's called Business Made Simple. Um, and he really does take the mystery out of growing your business. Um, a, he's done some great interviews, one with Seth Godin that we've talked about before. Uh, he's also talked to um, the CEO of Belay, which is Trisha Fiortino, about best practices of hiring and using a virtual assistant. Um, Scott is in dire need of a virtual assistant, but he hates to spend money. So I'm trying to convince him that this is a good episode he should listen to. Um, and just sort of leveraging the fact of all these little things that you can delegate out to get out of the way, which Scott loves to delegate out. He just doesn't want to pay somebody to do it. So go listen to this episode uh, with Donald Miller um, and Trisha Scartino over at Belay. Uh, I think you'll get some good advice and insights. That's Business Made Simple by Donald Miller on the HubSpot Podcast Network. Okay, back to it, Scott. Richard really, Richard really um, <clears throat> summarized my personality well there, very, very much so. So how do you think about this, Todd? So Richard is saying, you know, you need to have a few kind of beta customers. For what it's worth, in, in my uh, <clears throat> company that I'm building right now, GTM United, I have 10. I have 10 beta customers that I've, I'm essentially giving away the product for free to right now. But you're sort of saying, like, I don't know, maybe I should monetize this sucker straight away. No, no, I think it's super valuable, whether it's two or five or seven or 10. I don't think that matters. I think it matters at how in-depth you need to be, how many users there are. Design partners are super valuable. And Unusual writes a ton about this. I think they have this field guide that's really good about this whole design partner framework. I think design partners should have an end date, though. Hey, Richard, you're doing this with these two or three design partners. It's super valuable just to get them using it and meeting with you on a weekly basis. I think you should set a line in the sand that says, hey, after three months, after six months, when these XYZ things happen, we're going to ask you for money. And just set the expectation up front. And even if it's not a lot, just that it is coming, I think that's the right way to approach it. Because like you really don't know until you ask for money a lot of times. Scott, yeah. what do you think about that? Do you do that? That's an interesting idea. I would say that I'm not executing that exactly the way he describes it, but I'm within range, within reason. I'm also, yeah, if I was really trying to like go all out and I was focused on doing just one thing, I think I'd be probably executing that. But the reality is I'm running multiple businesses, doing multiple things, and I'm doing the best I can with the time constraints that I've gotten. So I'm, you know, 
I'm getting 85 percent. I'm getting a B, B minus. There you go. That's why you need the virtual assistant, Scott. Well, you're, yeah. probably, you're probably right. You just, I just sold you. Well, thank you. You know, this is a whole other conversation then. Well, how do I find a virtual assistant that I know and can trust to do certain things? Because I have trust issues. I'm happy to delegate everything off to Richard because I trust Richard to get things done. Random virtual assistant that I don't know. I struggle with this. You cast it. You know how to do that. Come on. Stop. I don't want to, I don't want to test. I don't want to test. I don't want to hire anybody that I don't already know is amazing. This is why I will, I will never be able to build like a big company. This is, this is what part I love because Scott just loves to absolutely melt down on camera. <laughs> Todd, we, uh, Richard seems to be having some technical difficulties once again. Um, we usually try to wrap the show by getting into, uh, you know, some things that you want to talk about, some questions that you might have if you want to ask us, you know, anything, need some advice or whatnot. So. What's uh what's on your mind? How could we maybe be helpful uh, to you? Yeah, I'm curious how you think about one thing. You've been in the LinkedIn influencer game for a while. You've built a big audience, I think, super authentically as well. Um, I've been seeing some changes on LinkedIn in terms of their reach. I'm curious how that's affected you, or what are some other people in your network saying? Oh boy! So now I'm about you're about to see smoke come out of my ears. Um, I 100% agree with you, along with a lot of people in my kind of circle that are at similar levels. I would say in the last three to four months, we've had our engagement cut by 70 to 80%, an absolute massive trim. Now, some people would say, well, maybe your content has sucked and, you know, changed or what have you. but not really, not across all of us. Is there, is there a post or two of mine that, you know, has been maybe a little bit lazy that maybe would have done pretty darn good before? Sure, I'll cop to that. Maybe there's a few that are, are that way. But we've tested it a lot of ways. We've taken posts that did thousands of likes and, and reached half a million people and kind of, you know, reframed it a little bit, not expecting it to get the same reach, but expecting it to get pretty close. And it'll like tank written new things, creative things that, you know, we thought had good hook, good appeal or whatever. And the reality is like, whereas you used to be able to write something and get a thousand likes on, on something. Now you're like, can I get 200? And this is across lots of different people, lots of different, um, sort of, uh, fields. I'm talking about people I know in marketing, people I know in sales, people I know in entrepreneurs, um, people all over the world. So it's been a huge, huge hit and, and honestly, like pretty demoralizing, candidly. And, and a few of us are like, man, I don't even, is it even worth doing this anymore? So it's, it's been tough. It's been tough. Is it, if, if you're talking to Scott five years ago, is it worth it? Like, I think, you yes. know, you guys have done a nice job with podcasts and newsletters and other mediums that you own, but is it worth it for someone that doesn't have that yet? Well, it's a hundred percent, hundred percent worth it. I mean, you could, you could make the argument that the only reason Serpent Sales exists and has ever sold out and turned profits is 100% on the back of me and Richard's LinkedIn profile. 
you could make the case that most of the business that we've both gotten, at least me, um, gotten in our consulting practices is on the back of uh, our networks that we've built on, on LinkedIn. So it's definitely worth it. It does seem to me that people who are newer and bringing and, and kind of coming up, like they're getting amazing reach, the reach that people who've been around for a while maybe used to get. So it actually might be a really good time for people to get started who don't have a big following as of right now. Maybe they change something where they're kind of trying to amplify newer voices and, uh, you know, kind of some of the people who are old salty dogs, if you will. I'm not sure, but it's definitely, definitely worth it. And I, I personally think that the only way you're going to be able to get into deals in the future is through your network. And if you don't have a network, I don't know how you're going to get into deals. I don't know how you're going to find jobs, all this kind of stuff. So it's 100% worth it. And somebody like yourself, at some point in time, your role sort of is just going to morph into being only a recruiter and only an evangelizer. So you've got to become the figurehead, man. So if you're a founder like that, your goal should be, how do I get Todd to, you know, max out my connections, help people out, produce good content, write about interesting things and learnings and network like crazy. Definitely worth it still. You agree, Richard, or disagree? hundred percent. I'll keep it short because I might get cut out again. Um, apparently my computer hit its memory capacity. So that's why I keep glitching. Thank goodness for another tool that's in here recording as a backup. But uh, I agree. I think that's part of it. I think that, um, you know, it's interesting. Scott and I have the same affliction. He has a much greater reach. I get angry and frustrated that my content doesn't do as well as his. He gets angry and frustrated that his content doesn't do as well as his. <laughs> so it's the same problem. Um, but you still have to keep doing it. And I think you have to. I don't know what the alternative is, the other piece, right? The other, the alternative is actually are going to the micro communities that are out there. And there's so many good ones, right? Scott's GTM, um, group is really good. I'm, I'm a fan, I'm a fan of modern sales pros, um, sales hacker. There's quite a few of them out there. So, um, there's some great communities. I think that's where some of this stuff, Bravado is another one we like with corporate pro and, and CTO. Um, that's where this stuff's going to happen in your micro communities. My concern there is that they become too micro. You can't reach the other people you also need to reach. Um, and maybe you don't. Maybe that's the whole game. You don't need to reach the larger LinkedIn network. I don't know. So it'll just be interesting to see where this goes in the next six to 12 months for sure. So. I guess the alternative is, is people just jump platforms, Todd. Is you yeah. know where where people used to spend time building an audience on LinkedIn, now they're spending time building an audience on YouTube or Instagram or TikTok or or whatever. But they're not. I don't think they're giving up on the LinkedIn side. I think they're trying. But I don't to think people are. I'm just saying that. He Todd was saying, "What's the alternative?" Or you were saying, "What's the alternative?" It's like, well, the alternative, I guess, is I stop spending time and energy creating on LinkedIn and I just go all in on a different platform. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think you can suicide into one or the other, though. Probably not, but you could make the argument that some of us who have been after LinkedIn put ourselves in a box because we didn't do anything with all these other platforms and we've kind yep. of put all of our eggs in LinkedIn, whereas some people maybe who are coming up right now, they're capable of 
of building simultaneously across platforms, which is probably the smarter strategy. Agreed. Agreed. Well, we're getting towards the end, um, wrapping it up and, and thanks to HubSpot, but Todd, as you know, we always like to ask what questions do you have for us? I know you asked one that elicited that answer, but any other questions you have for us? What can we do to help you? Yeah, I got one more. This isn't direct help for me, but much like you said, Scott, on the link, uh, on the networking phone, I'll tell you what, we get into a lot of deals. Some, someone asked me advice on something. Hey, early stage sales, comp plans, et cetera. And then that turns into meetings later, intros later. So I actually spend a decent amount of time doing that. Question I've gotten like three times this week, and I have the way that I approach. I'm curious how both of you do and have you both early stage companies is how do you approach the first AE comp plan? Or if you go the Jason Lemkin model, hired to it at the same time, how do you approach that? How do you guys advise early stage founders? Maybe have a little bit of paying customers, but hiring their first rep. How do you approach that comp plan in a world today where you know, you have to be efficient probably from day one and that big funding round isn't 12 months around the corner. Well, I don't believe in hiring one rep. I actually don't really believe in hiring two reps. If I'm going to hire reps, I want to hire in three. With two reps per Jason's model, people can partner up. There's, there's less competition when there's two people. There's more of an incentive to like make each other look pretty good. You add a third person into the mix and one person is going to be like, I'm going to whoop that ass. Right. And, and that I think drives more innovation, more results, more data a little bit faster. So always the very first hires I've hired in three. And I expect one person to be great, one person to be good and one person probably to tank. And then I learn from there about the backgrounds of each of them and what type of rep works and what type of situation. And then I adjust um, accordingly. What do I do for the comp? I, I assume you're talking about the variable comp part. So my belief on the variable comp part is that I incentivize the hell out of people early on. I would rather massively overpay initially to get results and to learn and to see how all this shakes out. The worst thing in the world that I could do would be to um, barely pay somebody any commission over their first couple of months because I've set these insane targets or um, even if they're hitting some of those targets, I'm just like being too stingy with my money and they're not that motivated or whatever. I, I'd rather overpay. So I think about that. I think about setting easily attainable uh, milestones so people can build momentum and that momentum can sustain itself. I want us to have wins, not just the sales rep, but the whole company. You know as well as I do that when the product team builds something and nobody can sell it, that's demotivating. So we want wins. We want, we want momentum. Um, and so I would probably leave it that way for like six months to a year. And then I figure out, okay, what's reality here? Like I can't pay these people $90 million a year. So I can't overpay that much. Right. And I tell people before they come, like this comp plan is going to change. There is assumptions baked in here. This is what I think we should be able to do. This is where I think you're going to land. If we've over indexed and made it really, really easy, we'll have to adjust, but go ahead, get your paper while you still can. If we've under indexed and, and, and made it like way too hard, then chill for a minute. We'll make it a little bit more fair and reasonable. And if you can handle that 
little bit of ambiguity and unknown in that period, then we might be a good fit for each other. So that's how I always go about it. Richard? Yeah, I agree with Scott on on a lot of this. Um, I, I always fell into the, the hiring two people model as well. Um, having worked with Scott, though, I also know Scott that if he hired three in one sort of tank, he'd probably try to find a different role for them. That person might be better suited for an ops role. They might be suited for some other role. So it's not like he's going to take three and kick one out unless he absolutely has to. Um, but I just know that's how Scott thinks. I think the other piece to to what Scott's saying is, I believe, um, you know, the, the piece that Scott's talking about is, I don't need to make it such a stretch goal that they want to go up within the first two or three months they're there, right? They have no loyalty to me, zero. So if, if I'm not paying them well and they bounce, whose fault is that? It's not theirs. It's mine. So I'm a big believer of you pay them their ramp the first uh, three to six months. I don't want them worrying about if they're going to make their commissions the first three to six months. I want them to worry about building out a pipeline and getting me information and intel that I need to make the right revenue piece. And to Scott's point, if we're going to blow up the company in three to six months because I overpaid a rep, then we've got a bigger problem as an organization in the first place. So I completely agree. So for me, that's that's the mindset behind what Scott's saying that I think people don't think about. Um, I also think when you hire two or three people, you're not necessarily committing to three one-year salaries. You're committing to three 90-day or 180-day salaries. So you know, keep in mind that all of a sudden it's not as expensive as one thing. If you you know if you do it right and all three are performing, then you're so much ahead of the curve for the next round of funding, for the next growth. You know, you get to your double, double, triple, your triple, triple, double, double revenue kind of thing. So I'm more focused on the positive outcomes that can and will happen to Scott's point about momentum than I am about how much money I'm putting out the door, which was kind of back to that question I asked, which was, so I've got three million. What do I do? Where do I start? Well, if you're going to start with sales, this is what you do, right? And you hire three people. At most, you're committing 300,000, 400,000, and you can trim that quickly if you have to, but you're not about to lose all 3 million. That, But that's what freaks people out. They're like, oh my God, now I only have 2.6. Well, actually you have more because you haven't spent it. You're just budgeting for it. Same way I think about equity. Everybody's yeah. worried about giving away equity. It's compensation that you could ever give away. Somebody has to be there for 12 months in order to even get any of it. Yep. We worry about giving it away too much. How many VP of, VPs of sales do you know who actually last all four years and keep all the equity you gave them? I never did. Nope. I always lasted two and a half to three years. Nope. Good still question, man. Pattern today. I've seen many yeah. of the projects still have the same problem. Yeah. Richard and I are going to have to read I'm his longest relationship. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> So. Hey, we appreciate you being on the show, Todd. Where can people find you, man? Yeah, I'm on LinkedIn, Todd Bussler, Champify.io. Uh, uh, happy to chat all things that we talked about. I don't know anything about virtual assistants or getting more memory on your computer, but otherwise, happy to talk. <laughs> Good. Well, I hope everybody learned something from this. Todd was basically useless for Richard and I to solve our problems. <laughs> we'll see you all next time on the Surf and Sales podcast. Thanks for joining See you guys.